Well, good morning on this humid Sunday. Um, I think we've had all the weather this week except for snow, but um, glad you're here worshiping with us today, whether here in person, out on the patio, or online. Uh, You know, the first church that I pastored um, went through a major growth surge in the 1990s and early 2000s. It was an amazing thing to be a part of. Um, And over that surge, over a 15-year span, the worship attendance of that church grew by 500%. Um, And our church administrator at that time decided to do an in-depth church study during that growth surge. And uh, one of the surprising things we learned from that study is that one-third of the people who'd come to that church during that growth surge either were not Christians or were Christians who had been away from their faith for a period of time before they came to that church. And our elders and pastors, we were all surprised by how high that percentage was. And we had a lot of conversations among ourselves about it. Um, We were all very, very aware that it was ultimately God's work that brought those people to faith, or that brought them, in some cases, back to their faith. But we also believed that the church had done some important things to prepare for that work that God was doing. Um, And one of the things that we did early on was we eliminated that church's evangelism ministry. Uh, You heard me right. Um, They eliminated that church's evangelism ministry. So how did a church with no evangelism ministry see so many people come to faith in Jesus? Well, today we're in week two of our four-week series, Glenn Kirk on Mission. Last week, we talked about being a worshiping community, that we are all about Jesus. And if you missed last week, I really encourage you to take some time and to watch that message on our Glenkirk website or on Facebook or on our YouTube channel, because if we get worship wrong, everything else is going to be messed up. It all starts with worship. Today, we're going to talk about the second part of that mission, inviting everyone to join in the journey inviting. Glenkirk is a worshiping community, inviting everyone to join us in this journey that we're on, this journey of trusting and following Jesus. And to explore this question, we're going to look at what's commonly called the Great Commission that Jesus gave. What would it look like for Glenkirk to renew its commitment to the Great Commission? So would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. These are the words of Jesus for us. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You can be seated. Just as God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on a mountaintop, Jesus gives his final commission to his disciples also on a mountaintop. And many Bible scholars believe that this parallel between 
Moses on a mountain and Jesus on a mountain is intentional to show us that Jesus' commission here to his disciples is just as important as the Ten Commandments. I want you to notice from verse 16 that this commission takes place in the context of worship. When the disciples saw that Jesus had risen from the dead, they worshiped him. This commission to invite other people to follow Jesus flows out of our own encounter with Jesus in worship. Worship comes first. And although some doubted, the disciples worshiped. I also want you to notice the word all in verses 18 through 20. Jesus has all authority in verse 18. Make disciples of all nations, verse 19. Teach people to obey all Jesus commanded. And Jesus is with us always, in verse 20. Now, grammatically, the main verb in verses 19 and 20 is the command to make disciples. The words go, baptizing, and teaching are all subordinate to the command to make disciples. Sorry if I caused a flashback to high school English there. No problem. Yeah, the English teacher says. (laughs) And what this means is the word go, baptize, and teach all explain how we make disciples. Disciples. They are the means by which we obey the command to make the disciples go, baptize, and teach. And the inviting part of Glenn Kirk's mission focuses on the go part of making disciples. See, some people think the word go is primarily about going to other countries to tell people about Jesus. After all, Jesus says all nations. And going certainly includes missionary work around the world. Here at Glenkirk, about 7% of our operating budget goes to this kind of work. And next month, we'll have a Mission Sunday where you hear more about Glenkirk's engagement with the nations. But first and foremost, going means taking our faith to the places where we already go. Going isn't primarily about getting on an airplane, flying to another country, and telling people about Jesus there. It's about going where we already go in order to make disciples of Jesus. Going to a PTA meeting or a club soccer game. Going to trivia night at a craft brewery or a coffee shop. Going to the office or the dog park. Going means bringing the message of Jesus with us wherever we go. Now, in our culture today, talking about our faith in Jesus does not feel natural. Unless we're at church or at Bible study, talking about Jesus can feel awkward and uncomfortable. Several years ago, there was a missionary scholar named James Engel who created a scale that represented the various stages people would have to go through before they became Christians and trusted Jesus. And Engel developed his eight-stage scale for missionaries to use so they could evaluate how far people in other cultures were would have to go in order to come to faith in Jesus. Engel's scale had eight different stages, eight being the furthest away from Christian conversion, one being the closest to conversion. Well, up until about 70 years ago, 
Most non-Christians living in the United States would have been a four or a five on Engels' eight-stage scale. With few exceptions, most non-Christians living in this culture would have had a basic understanding of the Christian message and a mostly positive attitude towards the Christian faith, a four or a five on Engels' scale. But over the last several years, that has changed dramatically. Many of our non-Christian neighbors today would be more like a seven or even an eight on Engels' scale. Many have little, if any, grasp of the basics of the Christian message and often a negative perception of the Christian faith. Inviting people to join us in the journey of following Jesus today is very different than it was 70 years ago or even 31 years ago when I first started in pastoral ministry. So how do we do this in this culture? Well, there's another passage from Colossians chapter 4 that I think offers some help. Colossians 4 verses 5 and 6. Paul writes this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The word outsiders in this passage describes our friends and our neighbors, sometimes our family members who don't share our faith in Jesus. Some might belong to a different faith tradition altogether. Some might consider themselves to already be Christians because maybe they grew up going to church or maybe they agree with a couple of Christian ideas, but they don't yet have a relationship with Jesus based on faith. And an ever-growing number are people who have no religious preference or background at all. Paul says to show wisdom in how we act when we're around people who don't share our faith. Wisdom is the capacity to understand a situation and based on that understanding to discern what's appropriate to do in that situation. And notice Paul starts with how we live in these verses. Before we ever say a word about our faith, verse 5 says to let your life speak. And by the way, this does not mean pretending that you have it all together. Some Christians seem to think that they have to look perfect for their life to be inviting to those who don't know Jesus. Perfect marriage, perfect kids, perfect families, perfect finances, perfect jobs, perfect house. We fear that our flaws and our failures will make us look uninviting. But the problem with trying to look perfect is we're not. I know it, and you know it. And when we try to conceal our flaws and failures, that doesn't make us look inviting. It makes us look fake and hypocritical. Acting wisely means letting our imperfect lives, flaws, failures, and all, speak about our faith before we say a word about it. But as verse 6 shows, eventually, if we're going to live lives of invitation, we're going to need to say something. And Paul doesn't tell us what to say here. He simply says that when we do speak, our words should be gracious and seasoned with salt. Gracious means gentle, agreeable. Words that show favor and goodwill instead of 
disfavor and hostility. So, so gracious words is pretty much the opposite of how a lot of people act on social media. Just do the opposite of that and you'll probably be good. And back then, salt was a metaphor for conversations that were interesting, lively, even humorous. Having a good conversation about faith is an art that we develop through practice. Jesus calls us to invite people to follow him using wise actions and gracious words. This is what the Great Commission is about. Inviting people to follow him using wise actions and gracious words. Now, let me share some of my hopes for Glenkirk in this area of inviting. And I'm going to mention six of them, and I'll go pretty fast. You see, there wasn't anything really unique or special about that first church that I pastored that went through the growth surge. And I'm not suggesting that Glenkirk should try to be like that church or try to be like any other church, for that matter. Any congregation that begins to take the Great Commission seriously, can grow in its capacity to be inviting. Glenkirk will be an inviting church when our way of life makes people want to know more about our faith. When our way of life, how we're living, makes people curious about our faith. Sometimes we don't even ask ourselves whether the kind of life that we're living is inviting or uninviting to people who don't follow Jesus. You see, often it's not the Christian faith itself that sours people to Jesus. It's Christians who don't take their faith seriously that sours people. I I went to college, to Biola University, with a guy named Michael Horton. And after graduating, uh, Michael went on to become an influential uh, Reformed theologian. He's written more than 20 books and been a longtime professor at Westminster Seminary. And back when I was first starting in ministry in 1994, um, he wrote a book called Beyond Culture Wars. Is America a mission field or a battlefield? And in that book, Michael warned that we can't have it both ways. That if we treat our culture as a battlefield to fight culture wars, we won't be effective in treating it as a mission field to share Jesus. Michael wrote that book 28 years ago. And much of what he warns in that book, we have seen happen today. How do we live inviting lives? One of the churches that I pastored had a monthly discussion group. It was a small church of about 20, 25 people. And at this discussion group, people in that church would take turns leading a conversation about a topic that they were interested in or that they knew something about. All kinds of topics like movies and music and wine pairing and cooking, you name it, we probably had a conversation about it. And it was an open discussion shared around a meal where anybody could say whatever they wanted. Well, one night, a regular attender of this group brought two of her friends And it was only by like the second gathering that her friends even realized that this was a Christian group. Her friends had left their church decades earlier. They no longer considered themselves Christians. And over time, this discussion group became a safe haven for them. Now, they're still on their journey of faith. But they're closer, I think, to Jesus than they've been in decades. Because a small group of people decided to live inviting lives that made someone curious and want to know more about faith. 
What if each and every one of us ended each day by asking ourselves this question? Has the way that I've lived my life today made people want to know more or less about my faith in Jesus? Glenkirk will be an inviting church when we venture across cultural, racial, social, and political barriers to get to know people. When we venture across barriers to get to know people. Our mission statement says inviting everyone, not just inviting certain people. When I was in seminary, I was taught a church growth principle called the homogeneous unit principle. You could sum up that principle with the old saying, birds of a feather flock together. The, the homogeneous unit principle says that churches are most effective at reaching people who are like the people who are already in that church. And so church growth consultants back then would encourage churches to focus all of their efforts on reaching people who are like the people who are already in that church. Well, if you want to know why, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most racially segregated hour of the week in America, look no further than the homogeneous unit principle. One elder at a church that I pastored called his church a boutique church that catered to a certain crowd. And by that, he meant people who looked like him, voted like him, and lived at the same income level that he lived at. And he was upset that his church was growing, that so many people were coming to his church that weren't part of the boutique crowd. An inviting church doesn't just focus on reaching people who are like the people who are already there. The members of an inviting church will cross barriers with courage, barriers of culture and race, barriers of class and politics to get to know people. We see this modeled in the book of Acts, chapter 11, by the church in the city of Antioch, very first multicultural church in the Bible. The church in Antioch was the church that identified Paul and commissioned Paul and sent he and Barnabas out to start new churches because it was filled with people who had the courage to cross boundaries. When I was pastoring at one church, uh, a woman made an appointment with me. I'll, I'll call her Carmen. And Carmen was an immigration attorney who'd been raised in a non-Christian religious cult. And one of um, Carmen's clients was a member of the church that I was pastoring at that time. Now, this client was very different than Carmen. But that client caught, crossed those boundaries to share her faith with Carmen. And through that person's invitation, Carmen, this person's attorney, came to faith in Jesus and started attending that church. Carmen made an appointment with me because she wanted to know how she could start to grow in her faith. And I suggested that Carmen join a small group, and I gave her a list. The group she joined had that elder that wanted the church to be a boutique church. He said some unkind things to Carmen after a couple of weeks in that group. And she stopped going to that small group, and I never saw her in that church again. An inviting church will be a boundary-crossing church. We will be an inviting church when we treat people who don't share our faith with respect. When we treat people who don't share our faith with respect. Some Christians like to take a one-up approach when they're 
talking to people who don't share their faith. A, a, a one-up posture is exactly what it sounds like. We set ourselves above the person and we talk down to them. It's, it's, it's very condescending. A commitment to invitation means resisting the urge to put ourselves one up and to take a one-down posture where we assume the role of a servant instead of an expert, where we listen before we talk, where we show before we tell. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about making himself a servant of all people in order to share the message of Jesus with them. If we don't treat people with respect, they won't care what we have to say, no matter how eloquently we might say it. We'll be an inviting church when we honestly share our lives with people who don't share our faith. Honestly sharing our lives with people. One of my very first jobs was working with um, developmentally disabled adults at Lannerman State Hospital in Pomona. It's since closed, but I was only about 19 years old. I was a brand new Christian, and I tried to share my faith with my coworkers, and no one took me very seriously. And one day when I was working, I lost my temper with a group of residents, and I yelled, and I said some things I could never repeat in church in a message. Afterwards, I apologized to one of my coworkers for losing my cool. And he looked at me and he said, well, now at least we know you're human. <laughs> and that conversation opened up a door to have lots of conversations about faith with this particular coworker. Now, the, the longer you're a Christian, the more involved you get in church, the more you'll find yourself living in a Christian bubble. But people who live lives of invitation will open their lives to those who don't share their faith. You know, one of my favorite stories about the famous 18th century um, evangelist George Whitfield is about his friendship with Benjamin Franklin. Yes, that Benjamin Franklin, the inventor, the, one of the, the founders of the United States, founding father. You may or may not know that Benjamin Franklin was an outspoken non-Christian. He did not like Christianity at all, and he wasn't afraid to tell people about it. And George Whitfield was an international evangelist. They, they first met through a business deal. But over time, they became close, close friends. You can read their letters to each other and they demonstrate mutual respect, deep appreciation, sincere love that lasted decades. And some Christian leaders and pastors warned George Whitfield that his friendship with such an outspoken non-Christian was hurting his credibility as an evangelist. But Whitfield refused to distance himself from his friend. And we don't know if Ben Franklin ever did trust in Jesus, but if he did, I think we can be confident that his decades-long friendship with George Whitfield played an important role. What if every member of Glenkirk had at least one of those kinds of friendships in their life? Genuine friendship, relationship of trust, mutual respect and love? Glenkirk will be an inviting church when we know enough about the basics of the Christian message to explain our faith. Being able to explain our faith. 
A lot of Christians are reluctant to talk about their faith because they're afraid of being asked a question they don't know the answer to. They feel like they need a seminary degree before they can start talking about Jesus with people. But, but that's like saying you can't talk about your favorite meal unless you understand the chemistry of cooking. Or you can't talk about your favorite song unless you have a degree in music theory. Most people who have questions about faith are not looking for an expert. They're looking for someone who will listen and take their questions seriously. Explaining the basics of the Christian message is not that complicated. Telling someone that God loves them, that, that God sent Jesus so they could be reconciled to God, that trusting in Jesus will bring them into a relationship with God. Isn't that complicated? It's scary to talk about, but it's not complicated. And even when we stumble and stammer and our words all come out wrong, God promises that he will work through his spirit when we talk about our faith. Finally, Glenkirk will be an inviting church when we have the discernment to know when and where to share our faith. Having discernment to know when and where. Sometimes, sometimes my wife Cindy will say to me, Tim, read the room right now. And what she means by that is I get so caught up in my own thoughts that I become oblivious to the social cues happening around me. Maybe you've experienced that with me in the past. I apologized. I'm working on reading the room. Reading the room means being present to the people that I'm with and what's happening in the moment. Reading the room is essential to know when and where to share our faith. And in our context, where people are a seven or an eight on Engel's scale, people who come to faith in Jesus sometimes take years going from an eight or a seven to trusting in Jesus. Picking the right moments means that we are in this for the long haul, committed to being part of the process. So it's ironic that that first church that I pastored at really started reaching people for Jesus after they got rid of their evangelism ministry. But it's only because so many members of that church really started taking the Great Commission seriously. I can still picture the faces of some of the people who came to that church. A young atheist couple who came to that church because their two daughters were asking them religious questions they didn't know the answers to. And so they started bringing them to church and they were as surprised as anybody when they encountered Jesus and trusted in him in that process. The immigrant family from Egypt whose entire family left Islam to trust in Jesus. The retired Cal Poly engineering professor who attended church every week for years before finally surrendering his life to Jesus. The woman married to a Major League Baseball player who came to faith at an Easter service. The professional bull rider who came to that church as part of his recovery program to break free from his opioid addiction who came to faith in Jesus in the process. And it could go on and on. You see, it wasn't because that church had special programs for atheists and Egyptian immigrants 
It's not because they started special ministries for engineering professors, wives of baseball players, or professional rodeo riders. It's because ordinary people in that congregation took Jesus' great commission seriously enough to open up their lives and live a life of invitation. In your bulletin today, there's a door hanger. And we also have some out in the, the lobby area. I do not want to suggest that inviting someone to church is the same as inviting them to follow Jesus because it's not. But inviting someone to Glenkirk may be a first step to inviting someone to follow Jesus. It may be the first step for some people to developing a lifestyle of invitation. So I want to encourage you to take this door hanger and to use it this week to invite because God is calling us to renew our commitment to inviting everyone we encounter to join us in the journey of following Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that someone invited us. Lord, whether it was our parents or a friend, a family member, maybe even a member of this church invited us to follow Jesus. Lord, may we be a community of invitation. May we be a community, Lord, that takes the risk to open up our lives, that lets our lives speak before we say a word. May we be a congregation, Lord, that causes others to be curious about our faith, to want to know more. May we be a congregation that's in it for the long haul, that's willing to invest in, in people's lives and live lives of invitation, sometimes over years. Lord, thank you that people did that for us. We stand on their shoulders and may we do it for others. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.